Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Sunday, October the 16th, 2022. Late last week, I had Rita Katz on the show. Um, she's an expert, an authority, if that's the right word, on terrorism. Um, and uh, she talked to me about, in our age of internet-born terrorism, should we consider QAnon and ISIS and Proud Boys and all and all individual school shooters to be terrorists? And I was kind of chilled by the fact that, at least according to Katz, all these people are terrorist. She has a new book out, Saints and Soldiers, Inside the New Breed of Internet-Born Terrorists from Raqqa to the Capital Siege. Um, and the book um, makes a connection between um, jihad, which I've always been rather skeptical of that word, to white jihad. In other words, from um, ISIS to now these radicals in so-called radicals in the January 6th movement. She's part, and I find it rather chilling of what we might think of as this military industrial terrorism complex. She makes a living out of observing terrorists. And, and, and she seems to be arguing that practically everyone these days on the internet is a terrorist, which makes one wonder what the fate of somewhere like Guantanamo is. Maybe uh, it's not just uh, members of ISIS they'll be, or Al-Qaeda they will be shipping off to Guantanamo, uh, but also members of um, the Proud Boys and all these other people who showed up on January 6th. Uh, I, I'm curious as to the thoughts on this with my guest today, Lisa Hajar. Um, she is a longtime critic of American policy in terms certainly of Middle Eastern, quote unquote, terrorism. She has a new book out, The War in Court Inside the Long Fight Against, T uh, against not Teachers, Torture. Uh, Lisa is joining us from Santa Barbara today, where she's a faculty member at UC Santa Barbara. Lisa, are you a little concerned with the way in which, quote unquote, terrorism experts seem to be making us paranoid again about one form of political violence or another. Now it, it's not ISIS these days, it's the Proud Boys. Well, I think that, uh, you know, national security is a fail-proof uh, means of, you know, producing certain kinds of consensus. But actually, I think that, you know, uh, I, I didn't, I'm afraid I didn't see the show with Rita um, on it, but I will look at, watch it later. Yeah, and I, I want to be, let, let me jump in here. I, you know, Rita can defend herself. I, I want to be fair to Rita. It's just right. my own concerns here. So right. she can speak up for herself. Right. Well, I think we'd have to be, uh, you know, you anyone with any rationality would be a little bit, uh, you know, concerned about the tenor of politics in the United States these days, domestic uh, craziness. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's talk, Lisa. You, 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 you're a sociologist, and uh, you've written a number of, of books and, and articles about uh, the quote-unquote, war on terror. Tell me about this new book, The War in Court, Inside the Long Fight Against Torture. What's the book about? What are you saying that hasn't been said before? 
Okay. Well, this book, I think the thing that makes this book unique is that I really was, you know, sort of following developments from the very beginning of the war on terror up until, you know, the last changes to the page proofs uh, were done in this this past summer. And so it's, it's a long um, sort of a teleological story of not only how the U.S. government uh, decided to embark upon, you know, a torture program, but it really focuses on um, who fought against that, the torture of people who were captured in the war on terror. And the answer is lawyers. You know, it was really this long fight that lawyers, military lawyers, human rights lawyers, corporate lawyers, you know, Democrats and Republicans who basically um, felt that the kinds of policies being instituted by the Bush administration on many levels, but particularly around the treatment of people who were taken prisoner and, you know, 780 of whom uh, ended up at Guantanamo, um, that this was absolutely wrong and a violation of the rule of law. And so in a sense, it had to be lawyers who fought this thing because it was Bush administration lawyers who, you know, first tried to legalize torture by arguing and in implementing a policy that the Geneva Conventions, the president has the constitutional authority to disregard the Geneva Conventions, the UN Convention on Torture is, isn't binding on the United States, uh, that new kind of war, unlawful enemy combatants have no rights, et cetera. And so it's been, you know, I mean, I take readers through, you know, like on a long journey and, and you know, stopping off in different mm. chapters on the... the so, so let, I mean, this is obviously, you, you, your politics are clear. You're no great fan of uh, the Bush, the second Bush administration. We've done some other shows actually on Bush and comparing Bush and Putin, actually, uh, Joseph Weisberg, um, is one person who believes that the Ukrainian invasion and the Iraq invasion were fairly similar. Also, Tom Hartman. Just remind us, um, Lisa, most of this audience are not as intimate with the history of American uh, counterterrorism and America and Iraq as, as you. How did Guantanamo originate? You've been there 13 times. This book is... Um, in many ways, a personal crusade of yours. How did Guantanamo begin? And what was this warring court all about? Okay, well, that's an excellent question. So, you know, with Dick Cheney um, had, you know, going back to the 1970s when he got into politics, had been deeply opposed to limits on presidential power. And when he became vice president, he stocked, you know, some of the top positions with people who shared his view of the so-called unitary executive thesis. And when 9-11 occurred and the start of the war on terror um, happened, it, he and this coterie of lawyers around him, uh, you know, found the opportunity to put their uh, long-held beliefs into practice. And so, you know, one of the things was that, you know, in early on, just simply um, from November of 2001 through about February of 2002, the groundwork on how the government was going to wage the war on terror was laid. So one was, you know, President Bush signs an executive order on November 1st, basically saying that anything, uh, any communications 
uh, with the White House or any uh, work product of government lawyers would be classified. And then the lawyers, you know, in this tight circle around Cheney get busy. On November 13th, 2001, President Bush issues a military order in which he basically asserts that anyone taken, any foreigner taken into U.S. custody uh, will, ha will have no rights. They'll have so no what's your reading on this? I, I, I mean, we're, we vilified Cheney for years. We progressives, and now, of course, given that his daughter seems to be standing up to Bush, the Cheney name is more complicated. But in your reading, was Bush waiting, and, and, and the people around Bush and Cheney, were they waiting for this opportunity to legalize torture? Or was it a genuine response to the, 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 the terrible shock and injustice of 9-11? Right. Well, I think that certainly Cheney and some of the lawyers around him were waiting for the opportunity to expand presidential power. But the idea of, of um, the authorization of torture, which really you know, occurs as a result of this decision that the Geneva Conventions don't apply to this war. But what's really, I think, important to understand is that Cheney and the people around him and the, those who prevailed had no military experience, knew nothing about what, you know, successful interrogation actually involves. And they persuaded themselves in their kind of neo-Hobbesian worldview that the only way to get information out of all these nefarious enemies would be to use coercion and violence and degradation. All right, to be fair, to, I, I, let me stick up for Thomas Hobbes here. I'm not sure uh, Thomas Hobbes. <laughs> Neo Hobbesian. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure Thomas Hobbes would be in favor of certainly, let alone torture, but legalized right. torture. So, what was the thinking that this was the only way in which you were going to get the quote unquote truth out of these people? Right. Well, the war on terror really begins as a war for information because, you know, the perpetrators were like shadowy enemies and there really wasn't um, much information. And so as a result, the strategic cornerstone of the war on terror for its first six years was to capture and detain people and then interrogate them for actionable intelligence. But because of the fact that people didn't know who it was that they were capturing and then the presumption being pushed through this, you know, the president is never wrong approach meant that everyone who was taken into U.S. custody was for all intents and purposes assumed to be a terrorist. And if they weren't giving intelligence that the, their interrogators were seeking, you know, the, the heat was turned up. Or right, and they were all sent to Guantanamo, right, which is right. quote unquote in Cuba, even if Cuba isn't part of the United States. Well, that's why Guantanamo was selected. They picked Guantanamo as a place for long-term interrogation and detention because it was far from the hot war zone, but close to continental United States. And those lawyers, um, you know, in the circle around Cheney made the argument that it's, you know, because Guantanamo is in uh, another it's, it's not sovereign to the United States. Therefore, the people held there would have no access to courts for any purpose um, other than the, the military commissions that were established to prosecute them. And the original idea was that they would never be represented by lawyers. They could be held okay. in... So, Lisa, you, um, you visited uh, Guantanamo 13 times. Tell us about your experience. What was it like? Well, I mean, I just to put it, this in context, because I had been, I started, you know, this research really in, uh, you know, when when the first lawyers started going to Guantanamo in 2004, after they beat the Bush administration in a 
court case, I was, I didn't think I could go to Guantanamo. I mean, I, you know, there's, you can't like apply, you know, get a research grant to go. And so I was following everything sort of on the, you know, through the media and then also interviewing people like in their offices. And then one day in 2010, and this, you know, the year 2010 is significant because Obama, you know, basically uh, keeps Guantanamo, keeps yeah, many. You're of no policies. great fan of Obama. In fact, in the book, you have um, a section suggesting that Obama was no better or worse than anyone else on this, no better than Bush or, or even Trump. Well, he, in a sense, would say that like he was the one that all the people fighting against torture were delighted that he won, but his victory proved to be a pyrrhic victory. And so in 2010, the very first person that Obama decided to put on trial when he kept the military commissions was um, someone named Omar Khadr, who was a Canadian citizen captured in Afghanistan um, in 2002 when he was 15 years old and he was brought to Guantanamo right after he turned 16. And in 2010, the, the case against Omar Khadr and the military commission started. And what was central to this case was um, whether or not the statements that Omar Khadr had made that the prosecutors were using against him were the, the product of torture or not. And so it was so frustrating for me that I couldn't actually be there, you know, be in that courtroom to watch uh, the proceedings. And then, you know, after the first round of pretrial hearings, I met a, a, a psychologist who was an expert witness on that case. Um, and she was about to testify in the July 2010 hearings. And I, she, and I said, oh, I wish I could be there. And she was like, well, you could go as a journalist. And that was, that was like the sort of light bulb moment in my head. And I applied to go as a journalist. And that's the way in which I went. I saw the, the Cotter case to its end. It ended in October 2010. And then I went um, a number of times. Again, so mostly- was it? Very briefly, Lisa, Describe, because I don't suppose anyone watching this or listening to this will, will have been to Guantanamo. What was it like? Okay. Well, it's a very, um, you know, it, the, the place is obviously incredibly secure because it's a U.S. military base. But the sort of the aura around it, you know, especially by soldiers, particularly soldiers who are um, dealing with journalists, was that, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a dangerous place that we are suspect because we're there, you know, um, and possibly being critical of what's happening there. Um, journalists and non-governmental organization observers sleep in tents in, in what is called non-ironically Camp Justice. And so, um, and the, the, the journalists, um, we always have to have minders with us, uh, you know, whenever we're going anywhere. But going into um, the courts, the court itself, I mean, the, the, the yeah. old court was just the a dental clinic on the base that had been repurposed for the military commissions. But the new uh, high or the high security courtroom court that was built uh, in 2007 to try people, particularly the five suspects on trial for the for 9-11 is a high security court. And so, you know, journalists, you know, we file in and we sit in our assigned seats, we look through a window onto, um, you know, the courtroom. And we, what we can hear is a, a delayed audio. It's on a 40 second delay because of the fact that the people on trial in the 9-11 case and every case that's really going on now were all held for years in CIA black sites and tortured. And even though that program is over that what what happened to those people remains to some extent classified and so, so it sounds like a sort of mix of don delilo franz mm -hmm. kafka and george orwell 
Exactly. In fact, that's how many lawyers would describe it. And, uh, you know, um, a conspiracy of dunces. Those are some of the right. exact uh, words. Uh, yeah. And, and Monty Python, really completely right. incompetent people running the whole operation. Right. Um, and then you were there. You were a critic. I mean, Lisa, you weren't there as an independent journalist, I assume. Given no, your I mean, politics I, I, and your track record, you were clearly there. Uh, if not to criticize, to represent um, the people on trial. Is that fair? No, I actually, I mean, well, what I was really interested in, because first of all, torture is a crime, right? I mean, it's a it's a gross yeah. crime. And so, that you know, I think that anybody who's not critical of that, but what I, what was really beneficial for me to go and report on what was going on on Guantanamo, but as a sociologist, you know, especially going time after time and observing particularly the 9-11 case was to understand that that case, which is still going on, you know, it's like still, right. you know, um, was basically it was like a um what I under, came to understand, it was a three-way conflict of interests. So the defense lawyers for the five <laughs> defendants were seeking information about how their clients were treated when they were in CIA custody, which is a legitimate thing for, for lawyers to want to do because <laughs> pre-trial pre detention conditions is, is um, legit. The prosecutors were basically trying to limit what they could um, access. And the, their, the prosecutor's argument was how those people were treated between the time they were captured and the time they were brought to Guantanamo in um, September 2006 is irrelevant to what they're on trial for, which is their roles in 9-11. But the third actor, the third party in this triangle of conflicting interests is the CIA, which owns the information yeah. about itself, which means it owns the memories of the people on trial. Right, and you've written extensively on the CIA. You you wrote at one right. point, uh, I think in 2014, the CIA didn't just torture, experimented on human beings. You're obviously no great fan of the CIA. <laughs> no. so, so Lisa, is this a book celebrating, and again, I use this term carefully, American justice. Is it a, a, a book that suggests that there was a successful legal fight against... Uh, torture at Guantanamo? Does it reflect well on, 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 the, on the lawyers that you write about? Yes, absolutely. It, I mean, because in fact, if, if lawyers had not, you know, for, and many of them didn't realize what they were getting into when they started taking these cases, but if lawyers and their allies had not, you know, sort of fought back on the terrain of law, there would have been no resistance. I mean, there was no you know, significant public opposition to the torture program, even after uh, details were revealed. But it was, I mean, let's be fair. I mean, it wasn't as if Dick Cheney or George Bush were coming out and saying, we're in favor of torture. They, they dressed it up in this legalese that made it seem acceptable. Right, exactly. But even even the euphemizations like yeah. moderate, um, you know, uh, um, enhanced interrogation techniques are, you know, in a sense, you know, degrading the laws and rules that should govern every government. Okay, so how's this? I mean, you, you mentioned that in my understanding is there still is there still 40 people in, in Guantanamo? 36, 36. So there's still 36 people. Is this legal fight? Um, the war in court, has it changed anything? I mean, it doesn't seem as if Guantanamo shut down yet, even right. under Joe Biden. 
Well, I'll tell you the one thing that it changed, like it, it, it brought an end to the torture program itself. And it was um, the one particular case, which I write about at length in the book, is a case called Hamdan v. Rumsfeld. And it was brought by mm. um, a Lieutenant Commander Charles Swift, who was representing one of the people who was put on trial in Guantanamo. The guy, his client was um, had been a driver for Osama bin Laden. And his co-counsel was Neil Katyal, a Georgetown law professor. And they challenged um, the, you know, the whole legality of the military commissions. And that decision, which came out in September, in June of 2006, the Hamdan v. Rumsfeld decision, basically the Supreme Court said, you know what, the Bush administration is wrong. The Geneva Conventions do apply, at least, you know, mm. to the treatment of prisoners. And that decision forced the Bush administration to close the black sites and the CIA black sites and bring um, 14 people who had been disappeared for years to Guantanamo. So it was, in a sense, that was one significant, if not a, I mean, it was a victory to some extent, but it, you know, really alters things. But, you know, the paradox is that once, um, you know, it, it took the appeal out of capturing and detaining and interrogating people, and it led to the targeted killing policy. So, All right, Rachel, so you, you've written the known known, the this play on Rumsfeld's unknown, unknown, uh, that Rumsfeld was a war criminal. Mm. I don't suppose that this book changed your thinking on that one way or the other. I mean, you've always assumed he's a war criminal. And <laughs> right, now well, no I get to know him in much more detail. Yeah. And, and, and now he's he's not here to defend himself. So uh, <laughs> let's, uh, let's uh, and I, I'm sure I agree with you, Lisa. Um, let's talk about the, the, the broader context of this. You wrote a piece with Mark Levine on international law, the Gaza war and Palestine's state of exception. As it happened, uh, Mark Levine was on the show recently. He's a, another UC uh, scholar, a historian who has a book called We'll Play Till We Die, a new book about a decade of revolutionary music in the, in the Muslim world. Is there a broader Middle Eastern context to this, Lisa, outside Guantanamo? Oh, absolutely. You know, for, well, for one thing, and Mark is a good friend of mine, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of legal arguments that the, these lawyers in the Bush administration instituted were taken directly out of uh, things that the Israeli government lawyers had done back in the 1980s, sort of arguing that, you know, interrogational abuse may be necessary and therefore legitimate. Wow. So but they were borrowing the legal arguments from the Israeli lawyers who were vindicating Torture. I mean, I don't want to turn this into another debate about Israel and Syria and blah, blah, blah. Your family is originally from Syria. But one, someone might say, well, this is all very well. Maybe there's some truth to it. But in Syria, Assad or Saddam Hussein or perhaps even the tyrants in the Gulf, they didn't even bother using legal veneer for this. Right. That's, I think that's the distinction. Like Because the United States legalized torture and then justified it once it was exposed, it gives cover to regimes that don't even bother, you know, attempting to, you know, rationalize it. But it, 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 it I would say that the, the role the U.S. played vis-a-vis -vis the treatment of prisoners really did serious damage to the universal norm that every human being, regardless of what, has an absolute and inviolable right not to be tortured. And so, I mean, that's something that... But, but, uh, I take your point on that, but some people might say, yeah, that's true. But on the other hand... Um... This was not 
legal carte blanche on torture. It was very specific and it was very, um, it was very uh, shaded in, in terms of what you could and couldn't do. So it wasn't enabling any torture to just go in and torture anyone they wanted under the law. Well, the, anyone who was captured essentially could be tortured because especially in the early years when they didn't know who they were getting and they right. assumed that everybody was a terrorist and they assumed that they were the only reason they weren't telling, you know, their interrogators where Osama bin Laden was, was because they'd been trained, you know, in the arts of deception. And so but some of the things when you get come to understand what was specifically authorized for the CIA, which then, as you know, many people have studied and written about migrated to military military interrogators, it was, you know, I mean, some of the um, worst forms of torture that exist on, um, you know, in at least in the modern period. I mean, because the CIA's torture program was what they called, they re-engineered something called the Survival Evasion um, Resistance and Escape Program. And that program had been instituted following the Korean War in order to train sol U.S. soldiers to be able to withstand torture if they were captured by regimes that didn't abide by the Geneva Conventions. And so during um, the Bush administration, those tactics um, were re-engineered and then given, um, you know, the CIA interrogators were given authority to use yeah, them. Yeah, the, listening to you, Lisa, it, uh, Hannah Arendt, of course, had her famous phrase about the banality of eagle, uh, the, the banality of evil in terms of making sense of the Nazis, um, and Eichmann in particular, there seems to be a sort of legal banality here of evil that, that the CIA was enabling. Is that fair? Yes. I mean, I think that there is, you know, part of the one of the things that I really do uh, go off on at some length is that the people, the legal thinkers who put forward the kind of justifications for this, you know, simply did not know the law. You know, I mean, even though one of them teaches at, you know, Berkeley Law School now, that's Wu, John right? Yu. You, yeah, John Yu. I mean, they have no knowledge of this, nor any practical knowledge about, you know, actual effective interrogation. And so it's this idea that that, you know, what, what the specific torture program was designed to do for the CIA was to produce what they called learned helplessness, to literally destroy the psyches of people in custody on the assumption that once their psyches would be destroyed, they'd be completely compliant. And then interrogators mm -hmm. could just, you know, feed on the, you know, voluminous information right. in their hands. If, if you was on the show, I don't suppose he'd ever come on the show, but if you <laughs> As he might say, well, these people were at war with us. They want to destroy us. They flew their, they flew our planes into our buildings on 9-11. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and we were desperate to get the kind of material that would avert another catastrophic event like 9-11. How would you respond to that? Well, I'd say that, first of all, it's like they, you know, this idea that, you know, every uh, Muslim in lands where the United States made wars, it was this broad, you know, net to kind of scoop up anything. If You know, it's like racial profiling only with torture and incommunicado detention. But so you're they, saying it was designed to just pick up young, radical 
uh, well, they, they didn't have they didn't have any say like they didn't know who was in Afghanistan. They literally didn't know who they were right. arresting. And so then when President Bush issues a military order in November 2001, it basically the argument was anybody in our custody is a terrorist because they're in our custody. And if they're in our custody, they have mm-hmm. no rights. They it have sounds no- like Rita Katz. She seems to be suggesting mm-hmm. that everyone on the Internet now is a terrorist. Um, but- <laughs> I wouldn't say that. But the, the thing I would say to John, you and I mean, the way the way you summarize his view is exactly spot on. But it's the idea that effective interrogation, particularly in the context of war, you know, requires like kind of rapport building. And more particularly, if you're trying to get information from shadowy enemies, you want to not alienate the communities of people that might have information. But that was exactly what happened. And so, it, you know, the, the torture program was an abject failure in terms of gathering actual and obviously abjectly shameful, a disgrace, perhaps even a crime against humanity. In 50 or 100 years, Lisa, when historians are writing about this, is this going to be a footnote or is it going to require a chapter on American injustice and uh, failure and mistakes in the world? Well, I think that it, hopefully it'll be a chapter. And it's, you know, one of the ironies now. Hopefully? Rather than well, I mean, I hope it, because it's a serious, it's a serious uh, issue right. that had ramifications for like international law, etc. But one of the ironies, you know, now at seeing um, officials rightly condemning Russia for what's happening in Ukraine, but without yeah. any sense of self-awareness that, you know, the Iraq war and what the United States did in Iraq looked a hell of a lot like what the Russians right. are doing. So you're on the same page as Joe Weisberg and Tom Hartman on this, that the Ukrainian invasion and the Iraq invasion are f- fairly similar. Let's stand back. This is complicated and controversial, Lisa. We had a show with Kim Khatas, a Lebanese-based journalist, highly respected, has a new book out. Well, it's not so new anymore, but it was new. Black Wave, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the 40-year rivalry that unraveled culture, religion, and collective memory in the Middle East. What does this Guantanamo shame fit into the broader context of American failed Middle Eastern policy? Well, I think... Aside from the failed Middle Eastern policy, let me just say that it actually is failed domestic policy, because one of the things I mean, the reason Guantanamo is still open, the reason people have not, you know, who are suspected of responsibility for the 9-11 terrorist attacks have not been successfully prosecuted is because what we found, and this is one of the bigger takeaways from my book, is that the U.S. legal and political system never anticipated a government policy of torture and the kind of rewriting of U.S. legal obligations. And, you know, that compounded by judicial, generally speaking, judicial ignorance about international law, our system failed us. Right. And then you get you, you know, get Mm. um, it built on with partisanship and so on. So there's no ability you know, like there's no collective narrative that Guantanamo was the most obvious mistake in a whole array of mistakes, because it's just, you know, it's kind of this American exceptionalism or, you know, we can do no wrong. It really requires an understanding of how the system was unable to respond within the law to kind of contralegal policies. And so we are still, you know, living you know, in the shadows of, of the institutions that the Bush administration instituted. 
I mean, you had this piece, Make American Torture Great Again, obviously a play on, on, on Trump. How, how, how much worse was Trump on this than Obama? Or was he just part of the same problem? No, in fact, Trump and Obama were very similar in the sense that, I mean, Obama did cancel the torture program, but he decided not to prosecute anybody who was responsible for the crime of torture. And he made some efforts to try to close Guantanamo, but didn't. But in a sense, he never acknowledged or, you know, we had no reckoning with the truth. And so it was Trump was, you know, by saying, I'm going to bring back waterboarding, I'm going to load Guantanamo up with bad dudes, was an obvious, like, sort of rejoinder to Obama's rhetoric. But in practice, the military commissions continued to work through the Obama administration, through the Trump administration, now into the you know Biden administration, Guantanamo remains open. So I argue that there's not that much difference, you know, if one is looking at the outcomes between Obama and Trump. Maybe uh, given Trump's legal difficulties now with the American government, maybe this is the appropriate legal ending. Maybe he'll end up in Guantanamo. Um, I I'm joking, of course. <laughs> uh, half joking, anyway. Uh, 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 finally, um, Lisa, uh, 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 this week I've got a, another guest, a Brookings scholar, more of a sort of mainstream think tank guy. Uh, has a new book out, The Problem of Democracy, America, the Middle East, and the Rise and Fall of an Idea. A lot of this was justified. Mm -hmm in the language of democracy, of America civilizing the Middle East, uh, the invasion of Iraq, so on and so forth. In your view, I mean, you're a sociologist been with a very passionate view of this, uh, of the world. What, how does America need to rethink broadly its policy towards uh, the Middle East, the Muslim world in particular, in the context of this obsession or historic obsession with democracy? Well, can we say that we're still obsessed with democracy? I think that oh, maybe. Well, yeah. well, you know, many people on the right are now saying we're not a democracy, we're a republic. But um, I think that, you know, there have been moments in U.S. history when um, the United States has actually and sort of what the what is done in the United States is you know respected and admired and emulated in in some places but the fact that so much of US policy has been driven by you know in you know economic interests and um, sort of militarizing regimes that are compliant or friendly to us it's not something that wins allies and it's not something that succeeds and it's not something that's actually promoting democracy i think that's just the rhetoric that officials use when they seek to have some kind of engagements i mean the one thing about trump is like he was at least you know honest in his you know viewpoint that you know he didn't care about any issues other than what's good financially for the united states like who's going to buy our weapons who's going to sell us oil you know so it's an interesting that certainly someone on the left is suggesting that Donald Trump is simply more honest than Republic uh, Democratic presidents like uh, Barack Obama. An interesting take, a very important and interesting book, uh, The War in Court, Inside the Long Fight Against Torture, an important book on an injustice, but also some good news in the sense that, I guess, Lisa, that the American legal system still came through. Right. Well, lawyers up. really well, lawyers really uh, did a great service to the country. And, and well, I, you've you done know, a service, too, with the book. Congratulations. Yeah. What else would you suggest people read, Lisa? 
not so much, not necessarily on Guantanamo or even no. the Middle East. What are you reading these days? Well, so I've been really, you know, after I finished this book, I was thinking, I just want to write novels. And so I started reading, I mean, I've, of course, I always read novels, but I started reading certain kind of novels to get an idea of what kind of style I might think about. And so one book that I really enjoyed this summer was The Man Who Loves Dogs by Leonardo Padura, which is sort of this narrative, you know, literary license story of Trotsky in exile after he's fleeing from Stalin and the you know Spanish person who's groomed to execute him. And then the third character is, might be actually completely fictional, is the person who tells the story of the guy who kills uh, Trotsky. And so it was really fascinating to me, you know, like histor real historical events that are then used um, creatively in that way. And then I read another book uh, re very recently called The Devil in the White City, which is mm. sort of this two stories. It's the story of the architect who built uh, the Chicago World Fair in uh, 1893 and a serial killer, America's first serial killer who happens to exploit the World's Fair to kill a bunch of people. So those books gave me an idea about the kind of book I want to write, the, the specific book I want to write. And it's going to be called uh, Kidnapping Kissinger. And so it's going to be, I want to really? dig into this Is story. Is it done yet, Lisa? Pardon me? Is it done yet? No, no, no. It's, this is just a raw idea, but it is going to be. You're focused. not going to actually kidnap. Well, no, no. It's, it's about the Har It's going to be about the Harrisburg Seven trial in 1971, in where Ekbal Ahmed and two left-wing anti-war priests, the Berrigan brothers, were put on trial along with some nuns because they had jokingly said, "Let's kidnap Kissinger, and when we can hold him for ransom to end the Vietnam War." And so I'm going to like sort of use that trial, but I also have to. I'll make an acknowledgement first time on your show. When I was, I, I grew up in Harrisburg, and when I was eight, which would have been 1969, I was obsessed with Kissinger. Kissinger was my role model. <laughs> and so it was only a few years later that I started coming into this. So I think I'll weave a, a kind of fictionalized autobiography alongside the story of the Harrisburg 7 trial.